And I just wanted to start, we're going to talk about Sabbath being sabotaged, but I want to talk about how sin sabotages life and how we feel its effects. So when sin happens, it brings with it sadness, anger, feelings of betrayal, uh, dismay, grief. Grief. Now, why do we experience grief when there's sin? or an egregious significant sin like the statement that I wrote about that's um, in the system, right? So it's allegedly until it processes. But when, when news like that comes, why does it hit, hit us so hard? Or why are, you know, right now if you're listening to your feelings, what's going on? It's grief. Now why does grief come? Grief comes because something dies right? We experience grief when something dies. It could be a person. It could be a dream. It could be an ideal. It could be a job or a career move when you're fired. But we experience grief when something breaks. The scripture teaches us all things, right? So in Romans 6.23, it says, the wages of sin is death. What's ultimately going to happen with sin left unaddressed is it's going to lead to death. And death is going to bring grief. Grief for what was and what could have been. So um, I was leading a church in 2002, and I came back from a sabbatical. I was a senior pastor, staff of four. And um, our deacon said, uh, we have to talk with you right away about an issue. And I came in and met with them, and they said, there's a problem. And I said, well, what's the problem? Well, there's $35,000 that's unaccounted for. Now, for our church, that was a big number, a big number. And the books were good three months earlier when my sabbatical started. So that was a lot of money in a short period of time. And it turned out that one of our staff members had actually embezzled that money. And um, it was something that really rocked the church. And there was a death of momentum. There was a death of kind of some, some dreams or some things that we were going to work on. Yes, with that $35,000. But this was a woman who also, in her relational connections, was very beloved. And so there were very mixed feelings about everything that went on. Um, and then for a period of weeks and even months, there was a lot of process by which um, we had to understand how to rebuild that. And then in the church, ripple effect, right, in terms of money is like, well, why weren't there the processes, why weren't processes in place um, that could have kept that from happening, right? So all those questions get asked. But what I was really learned as a pastor in that time was that the church deals with grief when sin impacts us. You know what? Sometimes we've got to go back to the basics. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this, and I think it's on the screen too, but what is sin? What is sin? Sin is missing the mark. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Sin was an archer's term. If when you shoot the arrow, you want it to hit dead center. 
the measure between where your arrow lands and dead center is called, was called sin, right? So you could be one circle, two circle, three circle, four circles away, or you could have missed the target altogether. But it's all sin. It's all sin. And what is the core of sin? The core of sin is this choice. I'm choosing me over God, or I'm, and, and or I'm choosing me over others. At the core of sin is selfishness. Think about this for a moment. Sin takes. Right? Yes, we can receive things, but sin takes. I choose me, not you. I choose me, not you. Since I already hit you with two Romans verses, 6.23 and 3.23, both of which are easily memorized, let's read this verse from Romans 13, a little longer, so I'm just going to read it right off the screen with you. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of law. You see, sin sabotages the life of joy, power, freedom, and love we were designed for. Adultery is selfish. Murder is selfish. Stealing is selfish. Coveting says, I want to take that from you. And what God does for us when he forgives us our sin and gives us new life in Christ, is he begins to reorder our life so that we can be free from self-ishness. We can be free from sin which holds us, whose only wage is death. Sin sabotages our life, and it sabotages the other people around us. One more thing I want to say about this, because I think it's really important. Sin's wide effect. When you choose self and sin, it has a ripple effect of harm or death that goes out from the sin you commit. And really, here's the question. And I heard it from another pastor a while ago, and I've always remembered it. What's your sin going to cost me? What's your sin going to cost me? In other words, sin is never a solo activity that doesn't affect someone else. Even if you're by yourself, in your room, with no one else around. Does that make sense? It's going to have an effect. And the bigger the sin, the bigger the cost, and the bigger the ripple effect. When I was leading this church in Modesto a few years before the embezzlement experience, which was so hard, uh, uh, many, many churches in the city were cooperating really, really well on prayer and service and evangelism. It was a time where actually thousands and thousands of people were meeting Jesus for the first time. It was a brilliant time, wonderful time. And there was a group, a council of 12 pastors who worked together on some things, and I was the young guy at the time, um, 
on that group working, and my job was actually media relations. I was working with the paper and TV stations because there were some things that were so unusual for, for church to be doing that it became newsworthy in a positive way. Well, along this path, um, there was something that happened with one of the key leaders, one of the really two leaders of the 12, where some actually some sin that had occurred earlier in his life and ministry which had been unaddressed, surfaced. It had been an adulterous affair. And um, I can't go into the detail, we don't have time today, but I want you to know what I'm talking about here, about feeling the effects of sin and, and grief and the, the choice of self over someone else and not being willing to, to let that come into the light where God works. You know, this had this massive ripple effect where... For seven years, we had worked and cooperated together, and then there was another seven years where those relationships and that trust had been torn apart by this one situation and how it came to light and how it was responded to citywide and just, you know, put a pause on that. Now, the last seven, eight years in Modesto, things have been popping. Anybody Modesto? Come on. Ten years there means humility. My wife goes, that's why God put us there. <laughs> he knew we had too much pride. He was going to put us there to learn some things. Boy, did we learn some things. <sighs> you know, but this idea of sin sabotaging our life, right? Part of it is, why are we susceptible to sin? Even when we've come to forgiveness and received the forgiveness of Christ, how do we become vulnerable or susceptible where you look at someone where something big might come to light uh, like I shared earlier and you can go well, how could that happen when we make ourselves vulnerable to sin and honestly I think one of the ways we become vulnerable to sin is to disobey God and not live in his pattern for living part of which is Sabbath let's look at this next scripture from Isaiah powerful scripture Isaiah thirty fifteen got to fix the slide next time I preach. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. So this is the prophetic voice, right? Why was Israel facing such difficulty? They were ex about to experience the consequences of their sin, which was the entire destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Talk about why effect. The death of many children and young people, terrible effect. The prophet speaks and he says, and he's sharing the word of the Lord, what God was saying to the people. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Mistyping, so bear with me. But you would have none of it. But you would have none of it. You know, stiff-arming God. God says, this is how life is going to be ordered well true, beautiful, strengthening, alive. But the people of Israel say, I'm not going to have any of that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Let's go to the next screen. So that's really, in terms of Sabbath being sabotaged, I, I said last week that UN did a great work in setting us up and showing us what Sabbath can be. Really, the Sabbath design is in Genesis 1 and 2 in the actually created order and the created design. Um, 
rest is, a, is an unselfconscious um, love of God and other and creation, a sense of goodness. The Hebrew word that they used for it and, and still do is shalom. Maybe you've had a moment or two in your life where you've actually felt it. And here's, here's what the feeling is like. All is good in my world. All is good in the world. I don't know why, but, but I feel right with God and, and right with others as much as I can be and connected to what and how God created the world to be. I encourage you, if you were here last week, to, to go online and listen to that, that sermon that you had preached. It was wonderful. But what happened? Something, something happened. There was a demise in Genesis chapter 3. Why? The woman did what? And this isn't on the woman because the man was standing there letting her do it. So it's on them, right? But what did she do in the story? Think with me for a minute. Many of you know the story very, very well. She took. She took the fruit that God had said, don't eat of that fruit. In other words, God was saying, trust me. If you take something bad is going to happen, surely you will die. And what happened when she took was that the garden was disrupted. The garden that God had created human beings, even human beings like you and I to live in, that glorious, wonderful reality of God's reign and rule that Jesus ushered in, calling it the kingdom of God, but that garden was disrupted. And, the, and grief came. Why? Because something dies with sin. The wages of sin is death. That's what God said in the beginning. And death began to flow toward Adam and Eve when only life had before. And there was a process by which there was a shaking as the death of the whole created perfect order, which included rest, was disrupted. And we see it very practically in the things that then entered into their life. The toil to get to, of the ground, the toil of work to get food, the pain in women's labor of bringing children into the world, and even all of creation being disrupted and, a, and being cut off between the garden and the wilderness. And in Romans, Paul writes and says, all creation is groaning until the revelation of the sons of humanity. Because all of creation was shaken. So you might ask yourself, like I did, as I was preparing this message and thinking about the, what we just talked about is, Adam and Eve... What's your sin going to cost me? What did their sin cost me? Our foremother and our forefather, what did it cost us? And I want to suggest to you that all of the sin of humankind <laughs> finds its origin in taking and self instead of God and others. And the creation, created order was shaken. And people began to rely on themselves. Now I want to pause here. I want to bring a little light and levity 
and hope to all of us. Because I want to I want to talk to you about understanding how Sabbath works. Why was it so important to God? Let's go to the oh, we are so in sync. I loved that. I turned around and it was there. Oh, flip. So understanding how Sabbath works. Why was it so important to God to give us Sabbath? So I'm going to stack on to UN's talk last week. And I want you to know that after six days, God had finished creating, and it was the seventh day, and God rested. I want to clarify something for all of us. You ready? It's important. God was not tired. God does not get tired. That's not why he rested. God wasn't worn out from creating the universe and the stars and the plants and the animals and us. The idea of rest here was that there was, for God in his design, there was no more work to do. And so the idea of rested here is that he could be seated in authority and look out and say, it is very good. And rest to enjoy what he had created, to enjoy Adam and Eve, to enjoy the way that um, supernovas look and the distant parts of the universe and the way that a, a seed grows into a flower and a bee pollinates the cherry tree. And God could just rest and enjoy what he'd, what he'd made. And so when he gives Sabbath to us, when he gives Sabbath to humanity, he's wanting us to understand that he wants us to be liberated from the idea that we always have to provide or work for ourselves, that we can rest in what he's already finished and completed. So in keeping Sabbath, and we have a couple more weeks to think about this and even hear from our pastoral candidate next weekend about it. In keeping Sabbath, two things, or four things happen, but two, two things to start with is that we take some time to understand our acceptance. In other words, that we have been already accepted and loved by God. God chose you. God chose me. God revealed his grace to you. God thinks well of you. God wants to be intimate in relationship with you and with all the people on the earth. God has done a profound work beginning with the taking in the garden to bring the redemptive work and power of, of Christ to be applied. But when we stop our busyness, we're able to, to begin to understand and receive that acceptance. And that's the, the grace of, of which we've received. Then also sustenance, the idea that there's a cycle of replenishing your spirit. There has to be a place in which we receive from God, right? So many places we're giving, so many places we're, we're putting out, but we need to have the rhythms by which we are receiving the grace of God and the sustenance. And so this really is these two points, the next slide, the grace of God is pouring into us. This is the, the, the grace cycle. The grace of God pours into us. And then the next slide, as we do that, then we 
have meaning in everyday life. Our life has meaning and significance. Whether you're um, working like I did as a freshman in college in the cafeteria at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, dealing with all the wonderful creations that college students make on their tray with whatever food they had left and send it down that invisible slide to whoever's back there, that was me, working, cleaning, and working on those dishes. But my life had significance because I knew I was accepted. I knew I had sustaining grace from, from the Lord. And my significant wa significance was that I could do that job well to make really, really clean dishes for whoever was going to use them next. And God's unfolded out into me uh, other opportunities for significance since that time. But it doesn't matter whether you're, you're working on the line, cleaning dishes, uh, you're a busboy or a, a buswoman in a, in a restaurant, or whether you're someone uh, that is the vice provost at the university. Your significance doesn't come from your position, but your significance comes because the grace of God's already been received in your life, and then it blesses whatever work you do to be meaningful and important because God says it is. And then, of course, we want to be fruitful, so we have achievement. We can work for the common good. We want to see fruitfulness in our lives. We don't want to produce nothing, or we don't want to produce bad things in our life. We want to produce good things. But to produce good things, you have to receive good things. I need an amen like I'm a Baptist. All right. <laughs> to, to, to produce good fruit, you have to receive good seed, right? We have to constantly put us, ourselves in the place where that's happening, where the grace of God is coming into our life. And then the next slide, then the grace of God can pour through our life. Is everybody tracking with me on this? Because we're, we're going we're gonna to see how and why this is not necessarily our experience now or on a regular basis or in the past, but it can be in our future because that's how, how Sabbath will work in our life when we stop and we rest and we look at God and when we look at others and when we look at the work that's been accomplished in the previous six days or the previous period of time so that we can receive that grace again, to remember we're accepted, we're sustained, and that we have significance and we can, we can rejoice in our achievements, not because of what it does for me, but because how it glorifies God, how it brings fame to his name, how it blesses other people. Now, why is it that we struggle so much with, um, with this concept? Next slide. And I want to say that, that people experience soul exhaustion because we actually don't live in the cycle of grace a lot of times. We live in the cycle of works where we flipped it, right? So my friend, uh, Pastor John Ortberg, does a wonderful job helping us understand this. Um, and, and Dallas Willard as well, if you've read their works, that we flip what God intended so that then we press and we push and we work thinking that we can get what we need in an opposite way. So we, we, we go for achievement. I'm talking, for all of you who are involved in 
and Davis, you're all achievers. You're overachievers. You're super achievers. <laughs> you know, just to get into Davis. And then when you're there to be able to push, to be able to get accomplishments. But what's the motivation beyond that? What's, what's pushing people to do that? And, and if we start there, what ends up happening is that we have, we go for accomplishments from our own strength to boost our ego. Why? Because we want to feel significant. So all of a sudden, my significance is attached to my achievements and not to my acceptance. I need another Baptist amen. Right? I, I'm telling you, I grew up in the United States of America. I grew up when AP tests were just booming and the fight and competition for college. And I had to work with this on three sides. But we go after achievements so we can feel significant. And we're, we're expecting that that's going to give us sustaining power to be able to get through all the, the challenges and the knocks of life. And then maybe someday it'll be a life that's, that's so full of achievement and significance that somebody will actually accept me. Someone will actually love me. Right? But it's for what I do, not for who I am. And even within the Christian church, we, when we do this and when we press and those margins get pushed out so that there's no rest that God ordained for us, we experience this soul fatigue that feels like this separation from God and ourselves and, and what we love about life and, and, the, and creation around us. And, and instead of soul integration happening where we're put back together again on a consistent basis, I've experienced soul disintegration <laughs> where we're, we're pushing and we're pushing and we're pushing for the next thing. And I ask myself, why is this? You know, why do I struggle? Why have I struggled with Sabbath so, for so much of my Christian life? And this is my answer I came up with for me. It might apply to you. It might not. But I want you to consider it. Deep down, I don't trust God to give me what I want. Maybe he'll give me what I need, but if my wants or my passions or desires are pushing me, then I have to go after that and get that myself. Yes, God's working for me, but I'm going to strive and push for this as well. Now, I'm ready to push some of your buttons. Are you ready? Okay. Because this actually, this cycle of works actually corrupts our communication of the gospel. We tell the story of Jesus who came with angelic host proclaiming him and kings worshiping him. We tell of Jesus who went to do his work in his father's house when he was young and wowed all the Pharisees and burst upon the scene at age 30, casting out demons and evil, healing people, providing food for them, having no fear at all of those Pharisees to tell them the truth knocking over the tables in the, in the temple and making things right, being willing to, to suffer on a cross, yes, but we remember three days later he was raised from the dead and he was exalted to the right hand of the Father 
and uh, was given that position because of all that he had accomplished. But was it really, was it really that way? Was, is that the gospel? Is that the life of Jesus? Taking his highlight reel, <laughs> like we often do, uh, show people our highlight reel, right? Or what was it really like? Was it that Jesus was born into a household of poverty, of working class people, lower socioeconomic status, but with good parents who cared for him, that he submitted to his parents' authority and grew up really in obscurity for 30 years. And when his public ministry did begin, it started with his baptism, his baptism. And in his baptism, something very special happened, didn't it? It was a declaration of his true father, his heavenly father, not his earthly father, Joseph, but his heavenly father. And he says in a voice that was heard, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I give you the fact that Jesus really had done nothing that we know of as his ministry, he had not suffered, he had not died on the cross. And the father just says, I love my son. I accept my son. I honor my son. I bless him. Jesus in his life grabbed hold of sustaining grace. What? He took long walks. He talked with good friends. He went alone to be with his heavenly father. He went to synagogue. <laughs> Did a bunch of things, right? To experience the sustaining grace. And his significance and his achievements are notable where the grace of God flowed through his life and his ministry. But it started in that cycle of grace, of experiencing that voice from the father. Let's read one more scripture, Matthew chapter 11. 28 to 30, another very familiar and famous verse. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You know, the Bible only uses the word easy one time, the writers of Scripture, Holy Spirit inspiring them. Use the word easy one time. I better look at it again. My yoke is easy. It's the only time in the whole Bible. Only time. The Bible says nothing is easy. One more Baptist amen and I'll, I'll stop. <laughs> you know, nothing is easy. God isn't one to give easy assignments. Go back and look at all these different biblical characters. They had to do hard things. They had to go through hard times. They had to hear hard news and push through it. Uh, yeah. But, but Jesus could make this claim saying that his yoke is easy. And so what, what is offered to us, Discovery Church, 
is not an easy life, but an easy yoke. What is offered to you today, even if you're awakening to who Jesus Christ is, God does not promise you an God does not promise you an easy life. This is like the punchline, of course, and the battery goes down. I thought they were just like, okay, your time's done. You're preaching too long. (laughs) But, But God does not promise you an easy life. He promises you an easy yoke. So if you're yoked to Jesus, the yoke, everybody knows, like, you've seen it before on oxen or whatever, ties two together, right? So when your life is linked to Jesus, that's the one thing that's easy when you're yoked to Jesus. You see, Sabbath is found in Jesus, and this will get elaborated on in the next couple weeks. Sabbath is found in Jesus. And the key Sabbath question for us is, what strengthens the soul? If Jesus says, I will give you rest, because of your link to me. You'll have soul rest instead of soul fatigue. Because when you're linked to Jesus, he's really close to you and he's whispering in your ear, you're my beloved one. I just think so much of you. You just hung in there this week and I'm so proud of you. Yeah, you're gonna be with me, not just today, but all your days. And I'll usher you in heaven. Whatever you do for me, we're going to do it together. Discovery Church, we're broken inside because we flipped it. We've got to flip it back. And we've got to create the space by which, in little ways throughout the week, but in a rhythm that God has given us, a cyclical basis, on a weekly basis to say, I'm creating this time and space to remember that I'm linked to Jesus and he's the one who's going to refresh my soul and he's the only one who tells me the truth about me, about others in the world and he's the one who's going to keep me from taking and from sin and he's going to allow me to be giving and glorifying him. Lord, there's so much more to to talk about here, but just in this time of reflection, I pray that we would have um, strong rest and refreshment in the message that we've received. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving sin. Thank you for um, the worship that we can give you. Thank you for what the table means to us and the, the rhythm we have as a church to share in that table week after week. Let it be deeply meaningful to us today, for we recognize that the wrongs we have done and the wrongs done to us were nailed there with you, Jesus, there on the cross. Let that link to you be very evident in our time now to worship and respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to enter into our time of response, and this is an opportunity for us to sit.